begin this week's episode with a reading from Henry Nouwen's book, The Inner Voice of Love, A Journey Through Anguish to Freedom. Cry Inward A split between divinity and humanity has taken place in you. With your divinely endowed center, you know God's will, God's way, God's love. But your humanity is cut off from that. Your many human needs for affection, attention, and consolation are living apart from your divine, sacred space. Your call is to let those two parts of yourself come together again. You have to move gradually from crying outward, crying out for people who you think can fulfill your needs, to crying inward, to the place where you can let yourself be held and carried by God, who has become incarnate in the humanity of those who love you in community. No one person can fulfill all your needs, but the community can truly hold you. The community can let you experience the fact that beyond your anguish, there are human hands that hold you and show you God's faithful love. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy. There's actually one more beyond this even, by the way. There's five total weeks. This week's episode will be a little different from the past two. I want to be clear. I really want scripture texts to be the basis for all the reflection on this podcast, because I believe these so-called different perspectives are always available right there in the text. This week in the texts, I saw an opportunity to talk about a broader theme of scripture interpretation. So my reflection is quite a bit longer than normal. But I do want to keep the timing of these episodes manageable. So let's jump right into the readings this week for May 5th, 2019, the fourth Sunday of Easter. Psalm 23 Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. My shepherd makes me lie down in green pastures. My shepherd leads me beside still waters. 
My shepherd restores my soul. My shepherd leads me in right paths for the sake of God's name. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh my whole life long. John 10, 22-30 At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him, and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. 
She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples who heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with the request, please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside and then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and he said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. Through 17. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white? And where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. 
The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. sheeple let's dive in there seems to be an awful lot of sheep talk in the readings this week but that's easy we're unintelligent animals and god isn't so we need to rely on god right Mm. you know i've always had a problem with being referred to as a sheep or a pawn or a suit it's just in my nature to rebel against that sort of label so with all the sheep talk in the readings this week my little sheep antenna eye went up. Then I thought, no one could possibly think these passages are just intended to make us understand that we are helpless and unintelligent, could they? A quick search on the internet revealed that there's a pretty strong camp of people who do think that exactly, and they are strongly encouraging us to feel that way too. I think that perspective, along with a pretty consistent theme among three of the readings this week, makes this a great week to get into some scripture reading practices. I'd like to start with three guidelines that will really help our interpretive lenses. But just before doing that, I want to quickly address two things from the only passage this week that doesn't mention sheep or shepherds, the passage in Acts. First, the rhythm of the healing story in this passage would seem to draw us back to Jesus healing a paralyzed man in Luke 5, 19-26. It would seem the author is suggesting that the work of God in the world is ongoing. This time, it has come through one of Christ's disciples, Peter. And it's actually quite similar to how it had come through Christ. The work of God continues in the world. And speaking of disciples, secondly, we certainly can't miss Dorcas. Dorcas was leading some pretty great ministries in Joppa. Loveday Alexander in the Oxford Bible Commentary notes that she had developed a charitable ministry among the women of the town, especially the widows who, in a system with no social security, could find themselves in severe financial straits. Alexander continues, Her clothing club is a prototype for the extensive practical aid programs that grew up in the later churches. Most significantly, though, The author of Acts uses a curious word to describe Dorcas. She's called mathetria, which is the feminine form of the word disciple. 
It was pretty extraordinary for a female to be called a student of any kind in those days, let alone be referred to with, with the feminine form of the exact same word used for the original 12 disciples. So, when someone says, the Bible says no women in ministry, tell them they better wrestle with Dorcas and several others. Which is a good transition back to some guidelines for biblical interpretation. Guideline number one. The Bible doesn't say anything. We hear this phrase all the time, right? The Bible says blank. No, actually, you say the Bible says blank. I'm not just being cagey. I think this added step helps us to be critical in our reading of the text and helps us to avoid a big problem that has permeated biblical interpretation in modern society. This week, we have a really good example of this problem in sheep. You see, because we have a contemporary conception of what a sheep is and what a shepherd does, we read that bias onto the text. In, for example, modern day North America, we probably don't have a strong function for sheep. Maybe they provide wool and that's it. But in the time of the authorship of Acts, sheep were of massive economic value. They offered meat, milk, wool, also known as the essentials, food, drink, clothing, and they provided the crucial function of grazing for farmers. Sheep were essential. So the Bible says we are sheep, but wait, are we essentially unintelligent and functionless? Or are we a crucial part of the ecosystem that provides life to all? Here's my point. The phrase, the Bible says, omits a crucial aspect of biblical understanding, which is to say that we all have an interpretive lens. I don't mind admitting that I have one here. The Bible doesn't say anything. We say what the Bible says, and somewhere in the middle of all of our saying, we can find value. As a side note, to offer some more thoughts on this concept, I'm going to put up a post on the website this week that goes further into this topic. Okay, guideline number two. When reading a verse or a small passage, we must understand it in the broader context of the whole narrative of Scripture. In other words, always zoom out. Using the concept of sheep as an example, since this reference to sheep occurs hundreds of times in Scripture, We can't get the full picture of what this metaphor is portraying from one passage. For example, if our understanding of us as sheep comes from Psalm 23 alone, we might assume that there will never be problems. We will just sit and sip water with God for the rest of our lives. Well, we all know that isn't true based on our experiences. Furthermore, I think we've done a lot of damage to people by setting this expectation. I've said this before, and I'll say it often. The church has created a very harmful environment by focusing on a limited number of passages. The assumption that's created is that, quote, proper sheep live in a Psalm 23 kind of world. Therefore, if you don't experience the, quote, Psalm 23 life, you're not a proper sheep. The passage in Revelation seems to think differently. Although the passage in Revelation doesn't specifically say sheep, it's pretty clear we're talking about something within the same metaphor. There's a lamb. The lamb is a shepherd who leads the people who have just come out of a great ordeal, 
which doesn't exactly sound like green pastures and still waters, and leads them to living water. But wait, a lamb is a sheep, and Jesus is the lamb? Jesus is a sheep shepherd? So apparently, the Christian life isn't just a day in a field by a river. Though it becomes far more difficult to wrestle with, engaging the broader picture of scripture helps us to develop a more complete understanding of a concept, as we will explore in a moment. Guideline number three. Whatever passage you're working through, attempt to find an answer to the question, what is the overall point of this text? All three of these guidelines were heavily influenced by my experience in seminary, but this third one is a direct ripoff from my Old Testament professor, Dr. Steve Delamarter, who's worth mentioning because he's retiring this year after 26 years of teaching at Portland Seminary. This guideline works in conjunction with the second guideline. That is to say, the point of a particular book in the Bible has an impact on the point of a certain passage. But here's a fictional example of why it is important to come up with the overall point of a reading. Here's a story. Sally, a co-worker I had spoken to a handful of times, came into my office the other day. She was wearing red shoes, blue jeans, and a white shirt. Her hair was up in a ponytail, and so I could see some lovely jade earrings she had on. As she walked in, I said, Sally, I really like those earrings. Thanks, she said. My mother gave them to me. I was wondering if you could help me with something. Sure, I responded. Uh, This morning, our boss called me into his office and he slapped me in the face. When he did, I dropped my keys and I ran. And I'm not really comfortable going back in for them. Would you mind going into his office and getting them for me? The end. So what's the point of that story? Is it what Sally was wearing? It was described there. Is it finding out Sally's mother's name, the person who gave her the earrings? No, it's what are you going to do about the fact that our boss hit Sally? Although I have a great interest in exploring the details of scripture, I also must acknowledge that a really interesting thing has happened in the Bible-worshipping culture of contemporary times. The Bible became a treasure map where every single word and detail was given equal weighting. If we solve every single puzzle, we get the treasure. But, as was the case with the observations about how Sally was dressed, every detail does not need equal attention. So, one of the first steps in scripture reading is figuring out which details matter more than others. For this reason, we precisely do not make a list of characteristics of sheep and then assume each Christian has to be every single one of those characteristics. Now, With those guidelines in place, let's quickly return to the text this week. With all these interpretive lenses in place, we must admit, these passages really don't have that much to do with sheep. They're about the character of the shepherd. Despite my barrage of caveats, there's no doubt that the Psalm 23 passage, in the words of Willem Prinsloo in the Erdman's commentary on the Bible, intends to bring home one central idea, namely, that in the midst of dangers and threats, one can rely on the protective presence, abundant love, guidance, and care of the Lord. End quote. This idea remains intact in the passage in Revelation, 
but it turns a bit more towards something which could be called hope. It's not that following the shepherd's voice always leads to an absence of conflict. On the contrary, in fact, not only does the living water come after the great ordeal, but Christ is situated as the lamb shepherd, the lamb, the weakest of all the sheep, the slain lamb shepherd who laid down his life for all and whose voice calls his sheep to do the same. Only there do they find living water. Finally, the passage in John would seem to bring the whole idea to its most hopeful conclusion. Jesus, facing pressure about the claim that he is the Messiah, responds with a sort of logic equation. I and my Father are one. As in, we dance the dance of Trinitarian love. My sheep are those who have eyes to see and ears to hear my voice, as I, the chief sheep, draw the others into that dance. So these passages didn't turn out to be about sheep after all. They are, in many ways, about the character of the shepherd and about the shepherd's voice. But the sheep are worth mentioning because many, including many inside the church, will try to speak for the shepherd. Many will claim to know the shepherd's words, but the shepherd's voice does not lead to fear. The shepherd's voice does not lead to exclusionary isolation, and the shepherd's voice does not require you to be unintelligent, weak, or angry. But how do we find this voice? Well, another reading from Nouwen's book speaks well to this question. So, after a couple closing details, I will close with another reading from Nouwen's book, The Inner Voice of Love. Thanks for joining us this week. I'd love if you would join us online. We're at postmodernliturgy.com. We're also at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. And I would love if you would consider supporting our work for free by rating and reviewing the podcast or financially at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. If you visit our Patreon site, you can see several great benefits for our supporters.
And now, Trust the Inner Voice by Henry Nowen. Do you really want to be converted? Are you willing to be transformed? Or do you keep clutching your old ways of life with one hand, while with the other you beg people to help you change? Conversion is certainly not something you can bring about yourself. It is not a question of willpower. You have to trust the inner voice that shows the way. You know that inner voice. You turn to it often. But after you have heard with clarity what you were asked to do, you start raising questions, fabricating objections, and seeking everyone else's opinion. Thus you become entangled in countless, often contradictory thoughts, feelings, and ideas, and lose touch with the God in you. And you end up dependent on all the people you have gathered around you. Only by attending constantly to the inner voice can you be converted to a new life of freedom and joy. Enjoy the tension.